On today's podcast, we are going to talk about the red flags of a toxic VC. And so I guess my first question is like story time. What personal experiences have you seen in the space of just toxic red flags? So I think the conversation today is we want to talk about some of the things that if you're an entrepreneur, you should be doing your due diligence on the VC, right? Like so often, like the perception is like the VC should be the one doing all the due diligence, but the entrepreneur should should be doing their diligence as well. Why would you do due diligence on a VC? They're not going to because you're going to be tied at the hip for a long time. And if you read your docs closely on that round you just closed, you just gave up a ton of control and rights over to those investors. So that's fine as long as you have a good relationship with them and there's somebody that you can trust, which means you got to do your due diligence. Personal story. One time we had a it was an angel investor. They were they were a VC, but they wanted to do an angel investment. Yep. And they kept saying they were going to invest when we hit this round of traction, we would blow through the round of traction and then they'd be like, they'd keep moving the goal line. Mm-hmm. And so then finally one day this person's like, well, let's have our third meeting. And it was a, lo- a long ways away. And I'm like, look, I'm just not going to go there and meet in person. Yeah. But they said they're going to invest. And I'm like, look, I don't feel comfortable with a person who's kicked the ball three times. Like it yeah. doesn't seem like they're going to fall through with their commitments. Yep. And I said, no, like, let's not take their money. But then I thought about it. I said, well, let's to meet you in the middle. Let's do due diligence on this VC. And the person on the uh, on the other phone, my business partner, screamed at me and said, why would you ever do this? And I'm like, oh, my gosh, like this is super toxic on both sides. Yeah. Interesting. Well, and then there's also this question of like there are VCs that are toxic and there's red flags. And then there are VCs that just aren't that interested in you, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and like, there's some nuance there, right? Like a VC is incentivized to never say no, right? Mm-hmm. Because like, let's say in your case, right? He's like, no, no, no. And then you absolutely like, you landed some massive contract and then all of a sudden it became super interesting. If he had said no earlier on, or she had said no earlier on, you'd have been like, oh, well, he's she's just not interested in what I've got to offer. I'm not going back to them ever again. And mm-hmm. they would have missed out on that deal, right? So like you're incentivized as a VC to always kind of like kick the can down the road as much as you can until with hopes that maybe it turns out interesting so that you always have optionality. So I think it's also tricky because there's a local person here in Utah who this person's motto is, I'm going to be extremely honest, tell you what happens. But I feel like it has literally come back and haunted that person when they have said, hey, I'm not investing in you because I am uncomfortable with this person on your team or you know, I don't think your space is that, that, that attractive. And I feel like it has created a really negative cloud that has followed him. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, it's an art. It's frank. It's it's totally an art, right? One of the skills that good VCs have to do well is saying no. You say no a lot. You say no a lot, but you got to be able to say no in such a way that it doesn't ruin the relationship. And if, and, and ideally that keeps the opportunity open without being that toxic person. That's like always just like like kind of leading the entrepreneur on without ever, without having any intention of ever closing the deal. What is your approach, Peter, on this? I mean, I tend to be fairly direct in terms of like why we're passing, but I draw the line. If it's like, if it's like, I don't like somebody on your team, I won't tell them that I don't like that person on their team, right? Usually that's not the only deal killer, right? I think there's a matter of like being able to separate, hey, this isn't a fit for our fund. 
And that's really like where I try to focus. And I think you and your baby are ugly, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that, that's, that's offensive, right? Mm-hmm. And people remember that they don't like that, right? But if you say, hey, look, like I think you've got some interesting things here. It just doesn't fit for us and our strategy, right? I think that's a way to, uh, to, to not attack people personally is totally a fair reason to pass on investment. And the other thing is oftentimes if it's a deal where I'm like, hey, I wanna leave some optionality here, I'll do two things. I'll tell them one, hey, how can I be helpful in the meantime, right? Mm-hmm. Here's some ideas of ways I could be helpful. And the other thing is I'll say to your example earlier on, like if you meet these milestones, I would love to re-engage because once you've hit those milestones, all of a sudden you move from outside of the box to inside of the box and, and we can have some more productive conversations. I think like that's the kind of VC that you should be looking for. Somebody that can like get you to ideally a fast yes, but if not, like the next best thing is a fast no without being like a total jerk about it. Okay. What are some actual red flags that you've seen or like what are the backstories? Like VCs are trying to do things that are outside of what's market. That's always a big red flag. So what would that mean? Like so that valuation could be, terms? Yeah, so it could be like valuation terms. Like they want a, you know, 3X participating preferred liquidation preference, right? When market is like a 1X non-participating preferred. Or maybe they're saying like, hey, I'll invest, but you got to personally guarantee my investment, right? Like that doesn't happen super often now, but it used to happen a lot, a lot more frequently in the past. So another one is like, you meet with a VC and they say like, oh yeah, I'm an investor, uh, but they're really like an analyst or associate and they don't have check writing ability. Okay. And then they just like, lead you on for a long time and you think you're having really great like conversations but like the partner level has never signed off on it they don't care they're not interested and like that vc is just kind of wasting your time i think the other thing is like vcs that show up late to all of your meetings and like don't care or respect your time is that standard in vc land i mean it's very common i used to work with one angel investor on several deals and to this day i will send locations almost anywhere i'm going yeah because i found that i picked up those same habits and i felt like it was disrespectful so i know that if i'm sending my location i want to be honest but yeah that's Side tangent. But if an entrepreneur, if a VC is really excited about your business, this gets back to like, is he really into you or not? He, he like he or she will be there and they will make you a priority, right? And mm-hmm. that's that's usually the best sign that like you're getting good traction is if you become a priority in their eyes. When Josh James raised money for Domo, the partner that from Benchmark that led that round, like he texted him and was like, hey, I'm going to raise a round. And the guy like left his dinner, got on a plane and flew out here right? Like that's commitment. Mm -hmm. So one of the things I recommend you do is ask them what the process is to get through due diligence with the firm. So for us, I'll tell you our process. Our process is I meet with an entrepreneur. I hear the pitch. I make a decision. Is this something that fits with us or not? If it's something that doesn't fit, usually I tell the entrepreneur like right in that meeting, like, hey, probably not a fit. Here's some other ways I might be able to be helpful. Here's some things that I'd love to see you achieve before you are a fit. And then like, we call it good. Um, But if it is something that's interesting, then I'll ask for a data room and I'll ask for a follow-up call. Then I assemble my team and 
the team digs through the data room. We do a follow-up call. We ask questions. The team packages up all the due diligence that they've done. They pitch it to all the other students. The students vote on it. If they approve it, we take it to our investment committee. Once the investment committee approves it, we're good to close, right? That's our process. And I and I explain it to people uh, in that first meeting if it's something that like we want to move forward with. Uh, other funds are... My, they may have some varying level of that same process, right? Maybe it's like, well, the next step is we bring you in as an entrepreneur and we have you pitch to all the partners and then we have a discussion and then we'll we'll dig into our due diligence and then we bring you back for a final investment committee meeting with our partnership. I really like that because I hadn't thought of that approach before to say, what's your process? We can know if we're following it or if, hey, they're just not that into me. Is it a red flag if a VC has not done a deal within six months, 12 months? Not necessarily, but yeah, the longer amount of time has passed, the more of a red flag that is. Okay. How do I find that out? To look for, or should I just be pitching everyone because someone could be a connection? I mean, I assume if they're raising the new fund, they're just going to tell you. Yeah. I mean, so some good questions to ask through diligence is like, how much money do you have in your fund? Where are you? Like, when did you close that fund? Right. So how much dry powder do you have? How many more investments are you planning to make out of this fund? What size checks do you typically write? Like, I think those kinds of things are important. Asking the process question will also give you insight into like how the firm makes investment decisions, which then will inform you at least to some degree how much sway that partner you're working with has through that process, right? You know, one of the toxic things is the VC that claims to be like all of that you know, like have tons of influence within the firm. And then in reality, like can't get a deal done by him or her herself, right? So, you know, you wanna watch for those kinds of things, but knowing their process can be helpful to like figure that out. How do you handle a, a VC who thinks he knows he's all that? I mean, I would say just walk, but like maybe not everyone has the, the choice to walk. I feel like one of the challenges with, with, with VCs is they think they're actual exceptional operators, they're great marketers, they're visionaries. And a lot of times- There's a lot of ego in VC. How do you handle that? Is that an issue or is it just something you it's just you have to deal with? Honestly, I think it's kind of something you just have to deal with. Okay. Well, think about it this way. Like both entrepreneurs and VCs are incredibly arrogant. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. You kind of have to be, right? You are, as an entrepreneur, you are saying like the current status quo sucks and I've got a better solution, right? Like that takes a massive amount of ego. Right. And then on the venture side, the VC's like, I believe that the current status quo sucks. And this guy, of all the guys <laughs> out there, the women entrepreneurs, like whatever, that's the one. And I'm going to plow millions of dollars into that one company because they're going to disrupt everything. Like that requires a ton of guts. I think that what happens is you get a lot of ego at the end of the day because of it. Ego is also driven by insecurities. I mean, think about it this way, like in venture capital, this partner at Lightspeed made the point, which I <laughs> to this day, I just think is a, is a great point. He's like, venture is like one of the few industries where you can be wrong 70% of the time and still be like viewed as just an absolute like money maker, right? Mm -hmm. But think about it that way, like, Every day, 70% of what you do fails. That's like kind of insecurity driving in a lot of ways, right? And so when something really works, like you get really excited. And okay. so I don't think like egos are necessarily all bad. I think there are obvious reasons why they exist within this industry. I think they do become a problem when they become an impediment to whatever it is you're trying to accomplish, right? Like 
I've seen deals where an entrepreneur turned down a VC and then the VC was like all hurt and their ego was hurt. And then like they went and did like some retaliatory things. Invested a competitor. Invested in a competitor or started up a competitor, right? And, uh, or tried to block one of their other companies from working with that company. And like that kind of stuff, that is toxic, right? Okay. Can we talk about uh, a recent discussion with a local VC? I don't want to mention any names, but there yeah, was a local, a local VC who, for whatever reason, didn't put, I mean, maybe they pushed. One of their investments just had an IPO and they were on the board <laughs> and they didn't let their founding team come through. Is that a red flag that I should look out for with that fund? I think that is a red flag. Is it? I mean, but I think it's a red flag, but they have it doesn't to... mean that you that just because a VC replaces the CEO, it's always a bad thing, mm-hmm. right? Like you think about Google, right? Google was started by two guys in college, okay. And as it started to grow, the VCs came in and said, "Hey, we think you should really bring in some adult supervision, right? Somebody mm-hmm. that's kind of been there, done that, bring some uh, pache, right, to the C-suite." And they brought in Eric Swint, and that was arguably the right decision, mm-hmm. like. He helped fundraise, he helped bring legitimacy to what they were doing, he helped close deals, like he helped mentor Larry and Sergio. And like eventually he he moved aside and, and Larry stepped in. But that was that was the right move. And it wasn't just the right move for the company, it was arguably the right move for Larry and, and Sergey, because they ended up making a lot more money because of Eric. Mm-hmm. Right. So like it can be like a benefit. Like what you want to see is you want to have an investor that says you've maybe hit this plateau. Let's find somebody together mm-hmm. that can take you to the next level. Right. And let's move you into a role where you're happier, whether that's within the company or maybe we help you start another company. That's one investor. Right. And that's the kind of that you want, even if they have a history of replacing people. The opposite is the VC that like from day one is like, wow, that guy is a train wreck. We're going to get rid of him as soon as we can. Right. Mm-hmm. And maybe maybe as I'm thinking about it here. Right. This, you want a VC that's empathetic. Mm-hmm. Right. And not just driven by short-term monetary gains, right? Mm -hmm. You want, at the end of the day, you want a VC that takes the long view. So my belief is that what a found, like a good founder brings to the table is the vision. Mm -hmm. They become the torchbearer of that vision. And not the operator. And not the operator. And the best companies, the biggest companies, are incredible torchbearers that can also execute. So you mm-hmm. think about Meta and and you think about Microsoft and Bill Gates, you think about Amazon and Jeff Bezos, you think about Steve Jobs and Apple, right? Like these people, they may not have been the best, they definitely weren't the best at everything that needed to be done in the business, right? Mm-hmm. That's not why they were a CEO, but they were really good at like holding that vision and and managing the teams that could actually execute against it. And so as a VC, I would almost argue like you should be backing that type of entrepreneur, right? Not the type of entrepreneur that can't get there. And you should probably pass on the deal if it doesn't have the right type of entrepreneur in the the CEO seat, uh, rather than invest and then can them. Mm -hmm. But that's my perspective, right? Like there are other ways to think about it. So this is the end of the Venture Capital Podcast. Like and subscribe. Thank you so much, Peter. We'll see you again next week.